0: I recognize that there's some criticism of this team of being too moderate, but moderate, at least in my lexicon, isn't a bad word.
1: It is the week of November 30th, and welcome to episode 53 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy.
2: Today we have Jody Herman, former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and first-time guest Michael Gottlieb, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to the President.
1: President-elect Joe Biden is proceeding with the transition from the Trump administration and has named his nominees for key foreign policy positions. Tony Blinken for Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan for National Security Advisor, Linda Thomas-Greenfield for Ambassador to the United Nations, and also former Secretary of State and former Democratic presidential nominee John Kerry to be Special Envoy for Climate Change Issues. Jody, we know and like some of these folks on a personal level, but what is your assessment of the Biden team in terms of how they will actually shape our nation's national security decision-making?
0: Thanks, Les. So I'm really excited by this team, as well as others, like Avril Haines for Director of National Intelligence, uh, and you noted John Kerry as climate czar, Michelle Flournoy possibly uh, as SecDef. Um, I think Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield is a really fantastic pick for the UN, a career Foreign Service officer with regional and management expertise. People may forget that she was at one time, not so long ago, the Director General uh, of the Foreign Service. So what I take away from all of this is this is an experienced national security team that is ready to start on day one. Not a group that will need six months to ramp up because they don't know which questions to ask. They know what questions to ask. They know when to ask them, who to ask them of, and they know how to work together from the very start. So I think for people who want a government that works, this is actually, And group of former staffers by and large like these are people who know their jobs uh and they know uh, the players and they know the field i recognize that there's some criticism of this team as being too moderate but moderate at least in my lexicon isn't isn't a bad word moderate doesn't mean compromising ideals and goals it means that you understand the political realities of this town and you know how to make the trade-off so i i'm excited about this team i think um when we talk about bipartisanship, I think that there's a lot for us to find in the middle between Republicans uh, and Democrats, even if I can see that the tactics may differ uh, between Democrats and Republicans on, on key issues, maybe like Iran. Um, but I think this is the team who understands, who understands this town, and they uh, are there to get, get things done and not just to make ideological points.
1: So, Jamil... The names that I mentioned and the names that Jody mentioned in a lot of ways are a complete departure from the Trump years. Everyone is a known quantity inside the beltway, inside the establishment. Some of them have been in Washington for years and you know, and we know some of them, some of them are our friends. None of them are outsiders. Is this a good thing or a bad thing?
3: Well, it depends on where you're looking at uh the question from uh last. I think part of it is. Uh, it's a good thing because it'll return us to a foreign policy that I think is uh, perhaps more stable uh, and more consistent uh, than, than this administration's foreign policy has been. That being said, it also means you won't get new and, 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 and tough ideas. Uh, the Trump administration's position on China, frankly, has broken new ground. I mean, it's been the right position uh, for the country. Uh, you might just, You might quibble with some of the specific ways that it's played out. Uh, whether it's the trade dispute or the like. Uh, but writ large, we've taken the right approach to China. Um, and you worry that a team com- that comes in with a lot of prior experience, which is obviously beneficial, may come in with a lot of prior baggage and the kind of baggage that may lead them uh, to take a softer line on China, uh, to try to go back to the, the ill-begotten uh, Iran nuclear deal, um, you know, and to maybe replicate some of the mistakes that were made in the prior administration. There are a lot of people who are worried – uh, this might be an Obama-Biden Bi- 2.0 administration in a Biden-Harris administration. I don't worry so much about that, to be honest with you. I actually think uh, this is a team that will learn the lessons of the huge errors uh, made by the Obama administration of foreign policy, be the failure in Syria, uh, the failure to, con- to-, to confront Russia, the failure to confront China. Uh, the misbegotten Iran deal. I think we'll learn from those errors and hopefully not make them again. Um, and so we'll see going forward. I think it's a it's a it's a it's a team that does have a lot of that history and experience. Uh, but I think we'll hopefully bring a new a new and fresh uh, voice to the table. Uh, uh, President Biden promises that in his acceptance speech. We'll see if he really meant it.
1: Mike Gottlieb, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. You served in the Obama administration with you know frankly all of these people. What's your assessment of the team? And if I can ask. What weak spots do you foresee uh, in the year years ahead?
4: Yeah, thanks, Les. thanks for having me on the podcast it's uh, It's great to be here with you all. So look, I mean, I think these appointments to date follow uh, a pattern, right? These are low drama, uh, exceptionally well qualified, highly respected uh, professionals. I think you know the, some of the papers are using the word careerists. So I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, but it but it's it's a low drama. Uh, professionally well-respected, people who have bipartisan credentials. Um, I'm not sure it's the same slate of people we might have seen if the Democrats had won the Senate. Uh, the slate might look a little bit different. You might see, for example, Susan Rice in the slate somewhere. If you had a, a, Democrat, uh, a Democratic Senate, um, you might see differences here and there. But I mean, I think you were always going to see people like Tony Blinken, uh, Jake Sullivan, Avril Haines as part of the Biden national security team in one way or another. Um, look, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of home runs in these appointments. There's certainly a lot of extra base hits, even for people who uh, don't, don't agree with where uh, Biden foreign policy may go. Um, somebody like Avril Haines uh, to lead the intelligence community is absolutely, uh, in my opinion, it's like a Bo Jackson style 500 foot out of the park home run at this time in place for what the intelligence community uh, needs after the last administration, you know. I think uh, people like Avril and Jake um, uh, will bring to the table not just um, considerable intellect, which they have. Um, they also bring to the table a you know a deep understanding and knowledge of the process that will have to be run through uh, the NSC and in, in in Jake Sullivan's case and through the IC more generally in Avril's case. Um, and so I think, and I think people um, at least in my experience and and what you read about and some of the profiles that have been done on them is that even people who disagree with them uh, in policy spaces tend to, tend to say about them, they're really good listeners. Uh, They get really deep on issues as opposed to relying on, you know, one to page one to two page briefing summaries. They actually understand what the bullet points in those summaries uh, mean and the debates that underlie each of them. They're really, really good about navigating uh, disputes and debates within the interagency And so these people will, I think, have, you'll see a smooth uh, interagency process with with people like this at the helm. Right now, it's really hard to say where the appointments are falling short, just because we don't know yet who's going to be the Secretary of Defense. We don't know yet who's going to be the CIA pick. There there are some really, really important key positions at DOJ, at Treasury that remain to be made um, in the national security space. And so I think it's kind of hard to say right now um, where this may fall short. You don't see somebody with um, a long-term military background on this team, as of yet, with Secretary Kerry obviously being the exception to that. But in his climate position, it may be less relevant. Um, so you may you might see that in one of the appointments to round out the team. But uh, you know, I think it's I think it remains to be seen where they've got weak spots uh, until you've got a full slate on the table.
1: So one of the things that strikes me about this group, and I and I I agree that they are are very capable, smart. Uh, folks who know the process and know what they're doing and can and can do the job on, on day one. I think there's there's no doubt about that. But the thing that strikes me is that this is a real departure from both the Obama administration and the Trump administration in this sense. Except except for John Kerry, and we'll get to that in a second, there's there's no one here who has an independent power base or who represents either the other party or a significant faction within the president's party. You know, you saw with President Obama, he had kind of a team of rivals approach. He brought Hillary Clinton into the cabinet. He kept Bob Gates at defense, who was uh, a Republican, at least nominally a Republican. He'd been there in the Bush administration. With President Trump, you know, for, for whatever his flaws were, he brought in senior military leaders, many of whom were Democrats, because he knew he needed to shore up his credibility with national security conservatives. So you've seen other, the last two chief executives have really kind of rounded out their their staff and their cabinets with folks from from beyond just their rather narrow political base. So does anyone foresee... That this might be a weakness for Joe Biden, that he hasn't really stretched to go find someone to bring in who's a big name, who could help him get some things done, maybe on the Hill or internationally with a broader coalition than just his own supporters.
0: I I take kind of a, a slightly different view of that. Right, Joe, Joe Biden is somebody who's been around Washington. Uh, is a careerist himself, right? He spent uh, his career in the Senate and then as vice president and now as president. I kind of take it as this is somebody who knows what he needs to get the job done. So I don't think it's hugely surprising to me that he's relying on people that he knows, that he trusts, uh, and that are careerists, right? So if there's anything this town needs, it's actually people who just know how to do their jobs and just want to do them, right? Um, it isn't necessarily uh, about finding uh, set, you know, that you don't have naturally. I think Joe Biden knows himself, and he knows what he needs, and he's he's picked a team of people who just want to get down to it and, and do the work. And I have to say, like, that is the right place to be right now. He hasn't picked anybody who's in, incredibly partisan. This is a group of people that by and large people respect, and you know what, they like them. Like people like this set of people. They like them as people, and they respect their work. And I, I can't see uh, you know a better combination. Um, for a national security team at this moment in time, when we need some reconciliation.
3: Jamil? You know let's, I, I agree with Jody in the sense that this is a likable group. It's a group that is likely to be able to get things done. Uh, they are trusted on both sides of the aisle. A lot of these folks are. Um, at the same time, it is it has been disappointing uh, to see uh, the vice president, the president-elect now not reach out to uh, Republicans to try and put a Republican in his cabinet. We haven't seen that happen yet. We haven't seen any outside the ballpark picks. I think you're right to point that out. Um, you know, a lot of these are, in fact, every single last person he has named thus far has had a long, uh, and I wouldn't call them careers. I like like Mike. Uh, these are a lot. These are political appointees. So they are, but they are definitely people who've been around the government for a while. And I think Jody's right to say that that means they can get stuff done. But it also means, as I said earlier, they come, they come with a lot of baggage. And sometimes you need, you know, maybe you don't need the kind of Trump break all glass baggage, no baggage, you know, bring everybody in from the outside who doesn't, who doesn't know what's going on. Uh, or frankly, to your point, Les, he did bring a lot of generals, but he fired a lot of generals too, right? He didn't like the way they handled it because frankly, when he brought smart, competent people in, they told him he was doing things wrong. He didn't like that. Um, and, he, and he kicked them out. And then he went back to his sort of gut instinct. that's been the president's deep, deep flaw. Um, and you might argue that President President elect Biden is making the other the opposite mistake, which is he's going with a bunch of folks who've been around the band forever. Um, and, uh, and he hasn't brought any Republicans in so maybe the time is now he talked about national reconciliation in his acceptance speech. He talked about bringing the country together at a tough time. Um, you know, there are moderate Republicans or frankly, you know, hawkish Republicans he could bring in onto his national security team if he wanted to. It doesn't seem like that's the current plan, uh, but it wouldn't be crazy.
1: Mike, let me put you on the spot here. And let's talk about John Kerry in this context. He's, of course, the former secretary of state. He was a senator for many terms from Massachusetts. He was the Democratic presidential nominee in 2004. He's an iconic figure in the party. He negotiated the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, he was there when President Obama got us into the, the Paris climate accord. Uh, he's got a long track record. Some of the folks we've been talking about actually worked for John Kerry. Is John Kerry going to stay in his lane or is he going to be kind of the management nightmare for the Biden administration? I,
4: I very much doubt that in a White House with somebody like Ron Klein as chief of staff and with uh, with people like, you know, Tony Blinken as Secretary of State. I just, I, I think it is, um, I think it is very unlikely that you see um, a a White House with sort of these um, competing fiefdoms. Uh, I, I, it just doesn't seem very likely to me. I don't know what, what Secretary Kerry's endgame would be uh, in doing that. And part of the elevation of somebody with a stature like Secretary Kerry to a position focused on climate is designed to elevate that issue uh, and to do so in a way that suggests that uh, the president-elect and his team view this as an existential uh, threat, one that deserves to be at the forefront of national security issues. And I think that um, that that's something that, um, that Secretary Kerry is likely to take seriously. Look, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, this is, the question is impossible to, to predict accurately, I think. You can never tell if somebody's going to completely go off the rails and decide to start submitting memos uh, onto the onto the desk in the Oval without permission. Uh, we've certainly seen some of that in this administration, but uh, I, I find Ron Klain runs a pretty tight ship, and I expect him to run a pretty tight ship in this administration.
1: What do, what do you think, Jamil? Is Ron Klain going to stand up to John Kerry?
4: Well,
3: look, I mean, John Kerry is a big personality to stand up to, right? Uh, number one. Number two, uh, Ron Klain can run as tight a ship as he wants, but John Kerry has been put on the National Security Council. So he's going to be in every meeting. And the idea that John Kerry could possibly hold his tongue an important issue of national security that comes up that he's worked on before which by the way is all of them right or at least in his perce- you know view is all of them uh, is is laughable the idea he's gonna stay in his own lane and just do just do climate change and only went on climate issues i mean when when nsc meetings happen there's no chance of that on this planet unless john Kerry, you know has become a different human being in his old age but let's just point to the facts you know this is a man who was highly critical of senator tom cotton in his official role as a u.s senator Writing letter, writing a letter to the supreme leader of Iran on the Iran nuclear deal, and yet for the last four years has been traipsing around the globe, telling every European ally that will listen, don't tr- don't listen to the Trump administration. Don't worry about the Iran nuclear deal. As soon as we get back in office, we're gonna re- we're gonna re-put it in place. I mean, it, the idea that he's gonna keep his mouth shut now when he gets to the o- when he gets to the National Security Council and the, in the Situation Room, I mean,
0: come on. I don't really see that the same way. I I hear you that Iran is a little bit of a harder issue for him to stay out of. But John Kerry's actually really good working on focused initiatives, right? Like you might recall the effort he put in on on trying to get the Senate to move the law of the Sea Treaty. When he decides he wants to work on something, he he really dedicates himself to that issue. But I see this appointment differently. I see this as a signal. Like this is a high level United States commitment. To addressing climate change, an issue that, by the way, is something like two-thirds of American voters uh, now see as a significant and important issue for the United States. I don't think it's so much of a of a partisan issue any longer. Um, certainly, Mother Nature hasn't differentiated between Republican Republican and Democratic states uh, in where it's sent this, uh, you know, mobilizing floods and and, and and fires. So like, I just see this as like the administration saying climate change is a critically important issue. And we're putting somebody in charge of it who has the capacity to bring together heads of state and foreign ministers and, and frankly, and senators. Um, I, I think it's upping the level of our engagement on climate change. Might he veer a little bit? Maybe, but I actually really think that he's good when he's when he that is at his best when he's focused on a particular initiative.
1: Jody, let's uh, shift a little bit, and I, I'd love to get your readout uh, given your incredible familiarity with this. Do you foresee any problematic nomination battles with some of the names we've discussed? And the big ones being that, that are up for a nominated job, of course. Tony Blinken for secretary of state, Linda Thomas-Greenfield for ambassador to the UN. Uh, do, you, do you see big battles between Republicans and Democrats in the right. Senate over those?
0: Just remind people that it's the Senate that does confirmations, not the House. So in that context, moderate is good, and it seems likely that Republicans will retain their leadership in. Uh, in the Senate. So like, it looks to me like the Biden really thought about Senate dynamics when making these appointments, and he isn't looking for fight uh, out of the gate, or at least not for confirmation fight uh, out of the gate. So I think, This isn't a discussion about whether or not folks are confirmed. The real interesting issue here will be what commitments senators will look for on the record during the process of those uh, nomination hearings and uh, eventual confirmations. For example, on the left, I would expect Senators Murphy and Senator Tim Kaine to seek statements on the record about ending the 2001 AUMF and reforming AUMF policy. Uh, i 'd expect Menendez and Rubio to demand some answers about progress in Cuba, uh, pursuant to obama 's you know normalization of relations, particularly in the midst of a massive internal crackdown on dissent uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, in Cuba and I generally expect Republicans to use those hearings as an opportunity to lean hard on Iran, which is clearly a place uh, where there's a difference in uh, in views as to what should happen uh next there so um and then i think both you know people on the right and left talk about russia and china and how we put north korea back in a box but it's not about their confirmations it's about what senators can get out of the administration on their key issues during the course of these nomination hearings what can they get in exchange for their vote it's always about that equation. It will really be true here.
1: Jamil, do you, do you agree with that assessment? Or do you think there could be a, kind of a stampede of Republicans against some of these nominees? And I'm thinking of Tony Blinken, who, when he was nominated for deputy secretary of state in the Obama administration, only got two Republicans to vote for him, Bob Corker and Jeff Flake. Of course, they're both gone. What do you foresee here come January when these names are actually under consideration in the Senate?
3: Look, I mean, I think it's hard for the Senate to not give the president the nominees he wants, uh, particularly early in the first term, particularly when it's clear that he's not going out of his way to nominate people, as Jody and, and Mike have both pointed out, Uh, that are firebrands. He's not nominating. He did not put Susan Rice up for a Senate confirmed position, right? Um, He could have done that. Um, There's a lot of fights he could have picked uh, that he's chosen not to pick. I think you will see the Senate fight on some of his nominees, uh, but perhaps not in this space, right? I think you'll see a, you may see a fight over DHS. uh, You may see a fight elsewhere. Um, I don't see Linda Thomas-Greenfield or Tony Blinken being particularly um, controversial. Now, that being said, um, you know, at, 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 as you point out, you know that, that Blinken got limited votes uh, when he was Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, will people feel boxed in that vote again? I think that's that's certainly part of that certainly could be part of it. Um, but you know, senators are generally willing to give the president uh, his choice uh, or her choice of nominee. Uh, when, when that time comes, particularly early in an administration. So I don't see any reason why it should be a different here. You have seen, though, prominent senators like Marco Rubio come out and criticize the Biden uh, national security team for being too Obama 2.0, uh, for being too careerist uh, and the like. And so we'll see whether that uh, that criticism catches fire uh, in the Senate as, as Senator Rubio tries to get out in front of um, other Republicans to lead these sort of you
2: know loyal opposition.
1: Grant. Last question for this segment before we transition to Iran full time.
2: So one of the things you guys brought up was that at the beginning, uh, Jody said moderate isn't a bad word and that Jamil sort of suggested that when you only have inside the beltway folks, you're not going to get these sort of big thoughts or big swings um, but the foreign policy establishment has largely shifted to a hawkish place on China and Russia. Where do you guys still see the need for our outside thinking? Do we need to take a big swing on India or South America or some other regional or topical area in foreign policy?
1: Mike, you're up, man.
4: I'm not sure I have the answer to that. I'm not sure anybody on this podcast has that has the answer to that. Um, some ideas that come to mind where out of the box thinking would probably be helpful you know, Venezuela, which uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, later in the podcast, I think is one area where there's not going to be any choice but to have some out of the box thinking. And so I suppose that could be one area where um, you know, relying on on outsiders or people who bring a fresh perspective could be useful. Afghanistan is another area where um, people who come in with a fresh perspective. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that the populist uh, war is always bad. Fresh perspective is the one that needs to be brought to bear in Afghanistan, but I'm um, Certainly one uh, that is focused on um, the intersection between anti-corruption um, and uh, our foreign aid dollars and the way that that influences our ability to sustain troop presences and, and CT operations in places like Afghanistan could be useful. So I think I definitely think there are places in the world where big swings and fresh perspectives uh, on uh, longstanding conflicts and, and policy, foreign policy problems would be useful. But I, I'm not sure I have the, the magic formula for that.
1: I do think it's important that the administration seek at least some way to get outside the normal box, and you and you do have. I think you do have to give the Trump administration credit for rethinking the approach to the Middle East peace process. It left the old models behind. It achieved new things that really no one thought was possible four years ago, uh, and it and it's put us in a totally different place in the Middle East. I think I think very much to our benefit. Now I'm not I'm not saying the whole administration was. Uh, Spectacular success, but their thinking outside the box did lead to some good things happening in certain cases. Uh, and, and as, uh, Mike, I agree with you, like on on Venezuela and Afghanistan, fresh approaches are are going to be most welcome. Jody.
0: Yeah, so I have one that isn't any of the topics that we usually talk about. I think there's a whole laundry list of things this administration will need to very quickly wrap its head around. Uh, but the one that we're not talking about, that frankly, we don't ever talk about, that we always should talk about, is Central America, right? So, which is key to addressing the immigration issue. But the truth is, we've never really taken developments in terms central america seriously even as thousands of refugees flee uh, across our borders from their violence that is uh, that is frankly a way of life in much of that region so if we're going to get serious about immigration policy then we actually have to get serious about having a foreign policy towards central america that looks to help those states build societies where people actually want to to stay and have opportunity uh to, um, to live not just subject to violence, but to actually be able to live their lives and, and be able to sustain themselves economically. I can't think of an administration that has taken that issue seriously over the last uh, couple of decades, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and yet we continue to be surprised by uh, migration and, and refugee flows from the region while completely ignoring what's going on on the ground be great to see some
1: new thinking on that. All right, let's shift to Iran and how President Biden will handle it. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action has been operational for over five years. Many of its key provisions begin to expire in just three years. It was John Kerry, soon to be our climate envoy, who worked very hard during the Trump administration, conducting his own diplomatic talks with Iranians and others to keep the agreement viable. Michael, What's your sense? Is President Biden, once he takes office with this team, who include a lot of folks who were involved in the negotiations uh, from the very beginning uh, back in 2009, is is President Biden going to try to get the United States back into the existing Iran deal? Or is he going to try to fashion a new nuclear agreement that's perhaps more sustainable?
4: Yeah, so I think that the, the team has been pretty... Disciplined in their messaging on this, going back you know six, six 12 months now, um, you know the president-elect wrote an op-ed back in September where he stated, "I'll just read the I'll read the quote because it kind of uh, guides the discussion." He says, "If Iran returns to strict compliance with the nuclear deal, the United States would rejoin the agreement as a starting point for follow-on negotiations." So there's a couple of components to unpack. There one is what does return to strict compliance mean? And then the second is, what does it mean to be the starting point for follow-on negotiations? Um, on the on the, la- hang the latter point first, the follow-on point uh, for further negotiations, um, you know, Jake Sullivan's given a bunch of speeches and talks on this and written some stuff that, that sort of explains it. The way he views this, at least, is that the Iran deal is similar to other arms accords in that you have a, a starting point negotiation that you then build on for other issues that were too too controversial or problematic to be addressed in the first one. Um, and I think, you know, he's said uh, in some of those speeches and writings that one of the things that Iran would have to signal for us to get back in the deal is that they uh, view it as a negotiation on an agreement that has a longer time period, on um, new issues or new provisions with respect to um, uh, verification and monitoring um, and the like. And then I think, you know, the other question, the, the first question was, what does it mean to return to strict compliance? Um, and there, I think, you know, there um, you know, the, the, the beauties in the eye of the beholder there. I mean, I think it is, is it, is it enough uh, for Iran to come back to um, the production levels that uh, it was at before uh, Trump pulled out of the deal Um, Or are they going to have to take other steps as well? Of course, um, you know, if Iran were to take uh, provocative actions following recent events, that would that would raise other questions. But I do think you're going to see um, the incoming administration start to move in those directions and fill out some of the details on what return to compliance uh, may mean and what further negotiations may look like.
1: So, Jamil, uh, persons unknown uh, carried out a very sophisticated assassination of uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who was the head of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. A few days ago, uh, there's been a lot of news on this, uh, a lot of churn on Twitter, a lot of speculation about who did it. Uh, aside from that, what's what's the impact of his death on on this issue? Does it change materially? the ability of the the incoming administration to to do a new deal with Iran or get back into the old deal.
3: Well, I think Mike is right that if uh, the Iranian regime were to lash out uh, now uh, in response to the killing of uh, their top nuclear scientists, it would make it much harder uh, for the administration to do what it said it's going to do, which is basically go back to the Iran nuclear deal. Um, That, of course, would be a huge mistake. Um, It would squander the massive leverage that the Trump administration has put in the Biden administration's hands. Uh, You know, the Iranian economy has been deprived of over 2 million barrels of oil in the last two years. Uh, 30 countries that have zeroed out uh, their oil imports uh, from Iran. Um, uh, The regime has lost $70 billion in oil revenue just in the last two years. Uh, to, To simply throw that leverage away, um, and say, well, we'll get back in the Iran nuclear deal as long as you come back into in compliance with what was everyone now can admit was a terrible deal that the Iranians never actually complied with fully, um, you know, it's just silly. I mean, it's just, it's bad policy. Um, it's a mistake. And it would it would not create the leverage for further negotiations. It would simply give away that leverage. So I think if the administration were smart, um, they would look, they don't have to agree with the, with the Trump administration's policy of leaving the deal, but they've now been handed a tremendous amount of leverage. The Iranian economy is much weaker today than it was when Tr- President Trump came into office, take advantage of that, right? Use that leverage to get a better deal now to put some of the issues that were previously left off the table before, like Iran's support for terrorism, like its continued pursuit of a nuclear weapons program, um, beyond just the silliness of, 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 of enrichment, which they've essentially mastered, um, and, uh, and, and really take, take some other issues off the table. It's support of Hezbollah. It's support of Qatab Hezbollah. It's, it's attacks on Americans in, in Iraq. I mean, Iraq. I mean there are a million issues that you could try to deal with in this. Oh, by the way, and not just give away ballistic missile uh, uh, testing either, uh, which is exactly what the administration did in the last deal.
1: Jody, let's take this issue to Capitol Hill for a second. Where, where are key Democrats? And I'm, I'm thinking of Bob Menendez and Chuck Schumer, who both uh, opposed the deal back in 2015 when it was before it became finalized. What, what are they going to be saying, do you think? to the new administration about how Biden should handle Iran.
0: Right. So no surprise here that there isn't a single view, even within uh, the Democratic Party in the Senate, on what should happen next here. Right. There's a spectrum ranging from Senator Menendez, who's the ranking member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who wants further concessions from Iran. Right. Kind of picking up on Jamil's point, which is you, you have some things to work with. Why wouldn't you work with them? Uh, to someone like uh, Chris Murphy who I expect will advocate for a more uh, immediate return to uh, to the JCPOA. Um, so I think even Democrats who opposed the agreement, uh, you know, Menendez, Cardin, Schumer, Manchin, uh, let's be clear, they all thought it was a bad idea to pull out of the agreement, right? Because it compromised American credibility and it actually made it harder for us to hold Iran to account to its commitments because we were also outside of the agreement. So all of those people who were no's um, have kind of overcome the ideology of no agreement um, and actually think that we need to have an agreement with Iran. Now, what that should look like, you know, there were different views there. So, you know, I think all of them kind of view us as being in a worse position today than we were previously, Iran's operating outside the agreement. We don't have um, we don't have a say in it, and we've lost our international alliances. However, you know this comes to the question of like what does a JCPOA plus look like? What are the elements that we would want to negotiate? And I think they're the ones that Jill Jamil largely just noted, right? It's uh, things that were contentious when the agreement was struck, the most contentious elements of it then, which were the five-year arms embargo, right, which is a conventional arms embargo, which has now expired, Uh, the ballistic missile sanctions clause, right, which expires in three years, uh, and then the relatively short time frame for the agreement in its entirety, right? So this is a 15-year agreement that we're five years into. So I, I think it seems obvious to me that some of the key players in the Senate, you know, particularly uh, Menendez in the position that he sits in on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, will be pushing this administration hard to get some additional elements out of a further, you know, JCPOA or JCPOA plus. Um, having said that, I think there are, there's a lot of pressure within the party uh, to step back into that agreement and see uh, if we can't just bring Iran back into compliance uh, where they started. I, I really think it's an unsettled. I think it's an unsettled question, and it's a politically sensitive question for this administration.
1: Mike, I'm going to gently suggest here that some of us on the conservative side think it's also ideological to think any kind of agreement with Iran could work, uh, and that faith in in Iranian compliance uh, with any with any kind of uh, diplomatic deal. Uh, might be based on an ideology that has some flaws in it. I'm just going to suggest that.
0: Last, I don't think it's about thinking that you can trust the Iranians. Like, it's a nice talking point that conservatives like to use, but I don't think it means the Democrats trust the Iranians now any more than they ever have. It's about whether or not you can make us marginally more safe. Like, before we struck the agreement, Iran was literally days to weeks from having, you know, a viable uh, nuclear weapons program. So, you know, putting that off uh, is in everybody's best interest.
1: But putting it off for how long and what do you have to give up to get there? They got up to $150 billion, some of it in cold, hard cash, uh, in in exchange for eight and a half years of forbearance. And, and so I think on on our side, it's ideological to think that uh, getting them in an agreement is somehow a good that could lead to other good things happening, which is exactly what the administration right. suggested. But if you don't time.
0: have an agreement, what prevents them from just moving forward? Right. So the, the idea was always there. Like if you don't have an agreement at all, what stops the Iranians from moving forward, because it wasn't our sanctions, like they're impactful and useful to bringing Iran to the negotiating table, but they weren't actually stopping uh, their progress.
1: Mike, let me, let me ask you this question though. Given, given all this and what's likely to be new initiatives on Iran. How does the new administration balance what's going on between Israel and the Sunni Arab countries in the Gulf, which which has been, I think, by by almost universal agreement, a, a huge plus? How do you balance that achievement with the fact that all of those countries are going to be very concerned about any new outreach to Iran?
4: Very carefully. I mean, it's uh, it's you know, it's. It, Israel's opposition to rapprochement with Iran, is, it's not a new thing and it's not a secret. And I think that um, you know, the administration will have to approach the bilateral relationship with Israel very carefully and the multilateral relationship with the countries that Israel has now formed ties with very carefully. And that, that is one thing that is substantially different about the region um, today than was the case when the JCPOA was, was entered into, is that you do have a level of contact among um, countries there, especially including Israel, that uh, that were that simply was not taking place, at least not out in the open, uh, in a, in a traditional diplomatic sense uh, today. And so I think, in in many senses, I actually think that gives the new administration more to work with. I mean, it gives them more uh, touch points and, and greater opportunities to find. Uh, uh, greater opportunities to find mutual and shared interests uh, where they may not have existed before. It obviously creates greater challenges as well uh, and sensitivities and the distrust of Iran um, is is certainly not no higher today, uh, uh, no higher today than it was uh, when the Trump administration came in. So um, I I think, I think they'll have to manage it very carefully. I think that um, uh, that this is one of the areas we're having, A team that is steeped uh, in the politics and the international politics of this particular deal and agreement will be useful because they they know the players. uh, They know the players not just in Iran but in the region as well. And I think that will be to their benefit.
1: Grant, what rock did we not turn over in this conversation?
2: So my question for you guys is: When do we know that our approach to Iran is failing? So our North Korean policy failed over successive administrations to the point where now they have nuclear weapons that directly threaten. (laughs) both our allies in Southeast Asia, and even potentially the United States. How do we make sure that successive administrations don't just sort of wobble between maximum pressure and the JCPOA to the point where Iran on the ground has already accomplished all their nuclear ambitions?
1: Jamil, your turn.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, that is the, the
3: million-dollar question, Grant. It's a great question because I'm not sure there's a good answer to it. Although, you know, if I were picking, I would say you have to do something different. If you do what the administration currently plans to do, the Biden administration, which is just go back to JCPOA and use it as the beginning of the sort of, you know, SALT treaty leads to the START treaty, leads to the new START treaty, right, which is what Jake has laid out, um, that would be a fail. Uh, because they have new and different leverages you've already heard over and over again. Take advantage of that. Don't waste that leverage. If you just vacillate between maximum pressure and JCPOA, you know, that's that's failing. Instead, what you should do is try to take advantage of the, of the opportunity that's here. Um, and look, I, I am not one of these people who say there's no deal that the Iranians will ever live up to. I do, I do think that it's hard to trust them, particularly this regime. But I do think that um, if we were to really uh, uh, you know, be serious about this and put in place uh, real measures uh, that would allow for real verification. Um, and frankly, let it go through the actual treaty process. I mean, imagine that actually doing a real, no kidding treaty. Um, you might have the kind of political support you need in the United States. You might get the kind of deal uh, the, that you need with the Iranians to get them to move further. And and maybe that's a new path forward, but nobody's talking about doing that.
1: Grant, uh. I think the answer to your question is very briefly, What what will pass muster uh, in terms of a longer term uh, sensible arrangement with Iran is something that's going to work out in the region, not necessarily with our where our Western European allies are, although we respect them enormously, but rather with our where our Middle Eastern allies are. Israel and the Sunni Arab countries are the ones that have to live right next door to Iran. They're the ones who are going to have to be uh, in accord with an agreement that's sustainable. Jody,
0: I'd like to get a little bit away from this presumption that all of these problems are solvable and that we blame one party or the other when they're not actually solved, right? There's a third party, third country here, whether that's North Korea uh, or Iran, um, who actually dictates a lot of what uh, of what will happen, right? So, you know, a smart policy is a policy that moves us further away from a nuclear Iran or a policy that uh, keeps North Korea from doing more nuclear testing, I think those historically were bipartisan issues. I'd like to see a resumption of a perspective that this is an important national security issue that should be a bipartisan national security issue, and that we're working together to prevent kind of worst outcomes here as opposed to us blaming one party or the other. Uh, presuming that somebody could actually solve this problem, right, that one party or the other is going to somehow influence the Iranians to stop doing what they're doing, or that the other party trusts the Iranians when, in fact, that's not the case, right? Like, Think about smart bipartisan foreign policy rather than just blaming each other every time North Korea or Iran does something that, um, that's in their interest and obviously not in ours.
1: All right. I have a feeling we're going to come back to this issue in future episodes. Let's uh, let's shift to the final part of the podcast where we go around and talk about the issue each of us is following that's not necessarily in the headlines. And Mike, will give you first shot.
4: Yeah, thanks, Les. Um, you know, one of the issues I'm following, I can't say that it's not in any of the headlines, but I am increasingly following and concerned about what's uh, happening in Venezuela and the challenges that we'll be waiting for the new administration when they come in. Um, like in Iran, the Trump administration has conducted a maximum pressure policy towards the Maduro regime over the past couple of years. The genesis of that policy predates the Trump administration, the, the, the origins of it. Um, you know, actually there's some, there's some sanctions from the Bush administration and a statute that Congress passed in 2014. Um, before the sanctions regime and the Trump administration came into place, Venezuela's economy was in steep, steep decline. That is, of course, um, accelerated the designation of the Venezuelan National Oil Company as an SDN uh, in February of 2019, accelerated the decline of the oil industry to the point where you now have one of the worst humanitarian crises um, in the world that is taking place. Um, US policy for the last couple of years has turned on recognition of the Guaido government in the absence of a democratically elected uh, president in Venezuela. Um, that has relied on the National Assembly, which was elected into its seats in December of 2015. The Obama administration, Secretary Kerry, then was a strong supporter of the National Assembly. That has continued. Um, unfortunately, what we're seeing uh, now is uh, two things happening simultaneously. First of all, we've got Uh, these sham elections that are taking place next week for National Assembly uh, on uh, December 6th Uh, and and, uh, Guaido and the opposition parties are trying to do their own referendum. Uh, But all of that is designed by the Maduro regime to call into question the legitimacy of the National Assembly and the Guaido government. Um, And then simultaneously the Maduro regime is cracking down on all efforts to provide humanitarian assistance um, many of the things they do are reprehensible, but the, the crackdowns on uh, some of the charity organizations include Feed the Solidarity uh, this last week, and Doctors Without Borders is uh, is just uh, unconscionable given the COVID-19 crisis spreading throughout Venezuela and making it more and more difficult for uh, humanitarian relief efforts to get into Venezuela. So. All of this is going to pose a huge, huge challenge for the new administration coming in. The, 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 the clouding of the National Assembly elections is going to present a huge problem of legitimacy that, that uh, we will have to help support the opposition on. And uh, it's something that is of increasing, uh, increasing concern for me.
2: Grant. This week, I'm following the impact of business interests on foreign policy. Yesterday, the New York Times published a report exposing how Nike, Coca-Cola, Apple, and others are putting pressure on the Senate to prevent passage of a bill intended to prevent the continued use of forced labor of Uyghurs in Xinjiang by the private sector. It should not shock us that companies are driven by their bottom line. In America, that means targeting the more progressive 18 to 30-year-old demographic with rainbow logos for Pride Month and statements on systemic racism. In China, that means kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party, staying silent on Hong Kong, and profiting off forced labor in Xinjiang. The bottom line may drive business decisions, but it shouldn't stop America from pursuing a foreign policy that puts human rights first. Jody.
0: All right. So I was going to talk about the same issue, but from a slightly different perspective, which is the media attention that's on the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Right. So this is a piece of legislation that moved in the House earlier this year on a vote of 463. It's about as good, about as good as you're gonna get. And the bill itself prohibits imports of goods produced by Uyghur forced labor. So the articles that Grant mentioned in the Post and the Times in the last in the last week that are publicly shaming large companies like Coke and Nike who are spending huge amounts of money on multiple lobbying firms this week is, is notable, right? You don't usually see companies like that called out for their lobbying initiatives or called out so publicly uh, for their efforts to uh, alter legislation. So, you know, at issue here is is compliance, right? So to be fair, a little bit fair, it's not so easy uh, to comply given the opacity of the Chinese uh, supply chain, which is intentionally obscured by the CCP. But I think this is exactly the point these articles are making, right? The solution can't be to make it easier for companies to comply with Chinese not compliance, right? The issue has to be whether or not a large company like Coke and Nike is willing to use the leverage they have uh, with China to force it to comply and make those supply chains more open and transparent, or to withdraw if the Chinese refuse to do that. So it's just really notable that um, this issue has been taken up uh, so transparently. And and focus on big uh, American businesses who have leverage but seem more keen on finding ways to comply with the law than they are keen on finding ways to actually make their supply chains more transparent.
1: Jody, it's it's almost like you're calling Nike out for the statement of their spokesman, Colin Kaepernick, which is believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything.
0: Right. So it's not kind of believe in it and be opposed to forced labor if it happens to work out nicely. Right. Like you're either in or you're out. You can't kind of halfway uh, you can't kind of halfway work this issue.
3: Jamil. So I'm following two issues happening in the Middle East right now, Um, obviously, the killing of the Iranian uh, chief nuclear scientist and all the associated issues. Uh, But you also have Jared Kushner going to the region um, here. And I know that uh, obviously uh, Kushner's trips uh, to the Middle East have been mocked before. But as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, uh, they did result in uh, the Abraham Accords and the normalization of relations uh, between the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Sudan and all those countries in Israel. Um, and so I think that's it. That was obviously an interesting step. And so you see Kushner going back to the region at a time of heightened tensions. Uh, the U.S. is moving the um, uh, the Nimitz carrier back into the Gulf um, after the killing of the Iranian nuclear scientists. Uh, we've heard uh, that Prime Minister Netanyahu was just in Saudi Arabia advocating for the Saudis to join him, or at least back him in a potential st- strike on his on Iranian nuclear facilities. And Kushner's in the region uh, ostensibly talking to Saudi Arabia and Qatar about their own relationship. Uh, but potentially about larger issues. And so I think uh, this is an interesting moment. Uh, uh, again, uh, Kushner's trips to the region have been derided in the past, but they have yielded results. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, comes out of this trip um, and whether any of these uh, rising tensions in the region um, actually result in anything, and whether it's simply saber rattling as the uh, Trump administration leaves office or if the Iranians are serious about retaliating or the Israelis are serious about. Uh, about coming after Iran for uh, their continuing nuclear program?
1: So the issue I'm following is the civil war in Ethiopia, uh, where Ethiopian forces have evidently moved all the way into Tigray province and taken the capital of Michale, uh thus uh, seemingly ending this phase of uh, Ethiopia's uh, turbulence. Recall that Uh, Back in the 80s, it was uh, fighters from the Tigray region and also Eritrea that overthrew the Mengistu regime, the communist-backed Mengistu regime. So I have a feeling this is uh, the beginning rather than the end of a lot more trouble in Ethiopia. And also Ethiopia has grown about three times bigger since uh, the overthrow of Mengistu. There's over 110 million people who live in Ethiopia. If things go sideways there... It's going to be a huge, big problem, a big humanitarian concern for the whole world. It already is, and it could get much worse. So that's what I'm tracking. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec.
2: If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. So that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for engineering and Lester Munson for hosting.
1: And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.